All right, church, please open up with me to the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We're going to continue in our study of this wonderful book. Fun fact that I don't think I had mentioned yet at this point, but after or in the process of becoming a Christian, this was one of the first books outside of the Gospels that I read in the Bible. And for a long time when someone would ask me, what's your favorite book? I was trying to be like the spiritual one because I know what they're wanting me to say. They want me to say something like, I don't know, Chronicles of Narnia or Tom Clancy or whatever book people read. I, I don't really read those books. I really read just a lot of books for school. But anyway, that's what they were wanting. And so me and my over-spiritualized self, I said, my favorite book is 1 Corinthians. And eventually, sometimes you get a little laugh. Sometimes you get like, oh, one of these guys, you know. Um, but this is a book that is just so, so good. And I think it's just because it's so practical. We're going to see that here in just a moment. But before we do that, have you ever seen those wind chimes? That um, it's like a whole bunch of hanging pieces. And if you look at it from a certain direction, the wind chime just looks like it's just a bunch of random pieces. But then as you kind of start to move around the wind chime, the pieces all kind of turn. And then it looks like if you look at it from the right direction, there's like a picture or a word in the pieces. Has anybody ever seen anything like that? You know what I'm talking about? Okay, so from the wrong perspective, it looks like just a whole bunch of just randomly free-floating pieces hanging different directions. But then as it turns or as you move around it, suddenly the pieces kind of start to overlap and then letters start to form or a picture starts to form. What appears to be just a random and separate collection of pieces simply needs to be looked at from a different perspective sometimes to see that there really is unity in what appears to be separate. So in a similar way, here's our main idea this morning. Church unity requires a gospel perspective and a gospel priority. We're going to unpack that here in just a moment. Church unity requires a gospel perspective and a gospel priority. As we come to our text this morning, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 through 17, we've already looked at the introduction. Paul has introduced himself, and now he enters into the meat of his letter. And a lot of people will typically, commentators will divide the outline, the book of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians. There's the introduction, then there's all the issues, and then there's the conclusion. Not real complex. Some commentators, and I actually think I agree with this second division, they take this middle section, this huge chunk of meat, all these issues, and they almost cut it in half. And there's this first issue, and then there's these second collection of issues. I want us to think about the book that way. So the first half of the meat of the letter is going to go from 1 Corinthians 10 to the end of chapter 6. And I'm going to call this Paul's Concerns. And then in chapter 7, the second half starts, and it goes all the way to the end. I'm going to say to chapter 16, verse 18, not quite the very end. And I'm going to call this Paul's Answers. So the flow of the letter is Paul's, I guess you're going this way, Paul's Introduction. Then you've got Paul's Concerns. Then you've got Paul's answers, and then you've got the conclusion. He's going to start with the things that he wants them to know. Then he's going to go into their letter and say, Now, concerning these issues that you wrote about, here's what I have to say. We are entering into this first section. And it's important that we think about it this way, because Paul, in the beginning of this letter, isn't responding to something that they've said. He's responding to something that he's seen that he thinks is vital to be responded to first. 
We are jumping right into this section, and the very first thing that we're going to read from Paul is the thing that he thought was so important, it had to come very first in the letter before he addressed any of their other questions or concerns. So now with that kind of foundation laid, let us stand up together for the reading of God's word. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 through 17. Not that it makes this any more powerful. It is just a physical posture of what should be the state of our hearts as we approach God this morning through his word. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 through 17. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus, but on that I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Join me in prayer. Holy Spirit, we are your people. We have been purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. You have filled us to bring to our remembrance these things and to bring change in our hearts as we encounter your word. So please do in us this morning what only you can do. Transform us into the image of your son, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen. All right, church, you can be seated. So as we start out here in verse 10, I appeal to you, brothers, I want to remind you that Paul has written this letter in response to a prior letter from the Corinthians that we don't have. And I want you to flip forward and see this for yourself. Go flip forward to chapter 7. You'll see why I'm dividing it this way. Chapter 7, verse 1, Paul has this interesting statement here. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote. And then he gives a quote here. So he's going to continue from this point on. We're going to see this repeated phrase, now concerning this, and now concerning this, and now about this issue, and now concerning this. So those are the issues up to chapter 6, and the end of chapter 6 are issues that Paul determines that he's going to address on his own. He starts with the important things first, and then the first topic is the largest and most important out of this whole section. It starts here in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. It goes through chapter 2, through chapter 3, through chapter 4, all the way to the beginning of chapter 5. So most of Paul's, most of Paul's content is addressing this one issue. It's a very large deal. The second, this is actually the second largest portion in Paul's letter. The first largest is in chapters 8, but that's in his response. So we need to pay very careful attention to what we're reading here. And there's one more clue to kind of to, uh, clue us into the fact that this is vital. Look at verse 10. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we are 10 verses into the letter. Do you know how many times the name Jesus Christ 
or Christ Jesus, either forwards or backwards, has appeared in the letter up to verse 10? Nine times. Nine times the name has been said. You can skim back over real quick. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. To those in verse 2, sanctified in Christ Jesus. Call upon the name of the Lord, Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Verse 3, grace to you and peace from God our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 4, Christ Jesus. Verse 7, Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 8, Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 9, Jesus Christ our Lord. Then we get to verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers. That was all the introduction. It's not an accident that he kept repeating that name over and over and over and over again. He wants the Corinthians to be reminded why he's writing the letter, who it is they serve. And then he says, now, in the name of your Lord, the one who has sanctified you, the one who has made you saints, the one who has given you saving grace, sustaining grace, enabling grace, the one whom we all serve, in the name of this Lord, our Lord Jesus Christ, I appeal that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. What is it that they are doing? They're dividing. The word that Paul uses for division here is the Greek word schisma, where we get the English word schism from. Matthew and Mark, in their Gospels, they both use this word to describe the tearing of cloth. Physical ripping of something is kind of what this word implies. So the image here is that you've got Christ's body together in Corinth, all the believers, and it is being ripped apart by something. He says it should not be this way. Paul uses a literary device here, follow me for just a second, called a chiasm. If you came on Sunday nights when we did interpreting the Bible, you might recognize this term. I want you to imagine making a symmetrical sandwich, okay? You have two pieces of bread, you lay it down. And you say, okay, first thing I want, uh, we're going to do condiments. Let's say we're making a, a hamburger. So I'm going to get ketchup, put ketchup on this one, put ketchup on this one. Then I'm going to get some, not mayonnaise, but Miracle Whip. Anybody? Please, thank you. Praise the Lord, I'm not the only one. Yes, not mayonnaise, but Miracle Whip, okay? So you get that, you spread it, you spread it. Set it to the side. Not mustard, because that's gross. I'm not weird. Then you get some tomatoes, okay? Put tomato. Then you get lettuce, whatever you want to put. You're putting the same thing on both sides in the same order, and then finally, you get to the goods. You get the meat patty. One, or if you're crazy like me, you get two. And then some people, really, they put meat and meat, and then they put the ultimate ultimate. They put bacon in the middle, and then you sandwich it all together. The point is, if you look at that sandwich, it's like a mirror version of itself. Bun, bun. Ketchup, ketchup. Miracle Whip, Miracle Whip. Tomato, tomato. And it goes all the way, all the way, all the way to the middle, and then there is one item in the middle. And that middle item is the most important. For some, it's the beef patty. For some, it's the bacon. Whatever is in the middle 
is the thing that's important. That's what a chiasm is, except that it's with words or ideas. It'll have the same idea at the beginning of the paragraph, a same idea at the end of the paragraph. Then the next idea is next, but then the next idea was right before, and it goes back and forth all the way until you get to the middle, and that middle thing is the point that they're trying to make. This seems odd to us because we don't use this technique anymore in our writing. But they used it then, and they use it in Scripture many times, and it's easy for us to not even realize it's there. But it's helpful for us to see it. So where is the chiasm at right here? It's all located within verse 10. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, here's the first bun, that all of you agree. So now we're going to fast forward to the end of verse 10. Here's the bottom bun. That you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. So the chiasm here, the buns are positive instructions. Agree. Be of the same mind and the same judgment. That's a positive instruction. The meat is the negative construction of the exact same thing. Sandwiched in the middle of that is this statement that there be no divisions among you. So this is the key idea that Paul wants to draw out in this command for them to be united. Why would the negative command, do not divide, be more important than the positive command, come together and agree? Because in the gospel, we are already united in Christ. We are not starting from neutral ground. We start from a position of unity. So if we want to pursue unity, the command to come together doesn't really help a whole bunch. Rather, the goal is we want to keep this from tearing apart. So the meat and the thrust of the instruction is do not divide. Do not come apart from one another. In the gospel, we start from a position of unity. We're already together, so we don't have to fight as hard to come together as we have to fight to keep from separating. So here's the first point here this morning. Church unity, unity in the church, requires, number one, a gospel perspective. That means we must not divide because the gospel has already united us. We are looking at unity sometimes from the wrong perspective, just like we look at that wind chime from the wrong perspective. We see all these separate pieces, and if we would just direct our gaze slightly, we would see from this other perspective, it actually falls together perfectly. But we don't see it like that in the moment because we're not looking at it the right way. The practical application of this principle means that we must concern ourselves with how to avoid division more than how do we become united. That's not to say that that's not important, but the major thrust needs to be how do we avoid division? And I'm going to give you an illustration. Imagine a building with countless rooms. The rooms and doorways into those rooms represent different desires, different perceived needs or wants, and then the doors represent how we achieve those desires. So some rooms might be success or ease or comfort. 
Doorways to those rooms might include my career, my family, my hobbies, okay? Now imagine that this building is filled with people, and they're all trying to wind up in the same place. They're pursuing unity. We want to all come together. Unity is the goal. So in pursuit of this goal, they've all started in all these different places, and they're wandering around and opening a door and going in, and there's not really anybody in here. Okay, go in this room. The temperature's nice in here. I don't see anybody. Finally, we come across some people in a room. They all happen to walk in a door at the same time we do, and we think, oh, hey, there's some people. Hey, so you come together, you talk. We need to get more people in here. I know, we need to be united. Okay, everyone open all the doors into this room. And as you see anybody walking by, let's try to gather them in. Okay, so people start to gather into this room. It starts to get bigger. We think, okay, great. Let's wait here and then continue to encourage people to wind up here. In fact, you know what? Every time this person walks by, they look at our door and kind of look disgusted. Let's just dress it up real nice. Make it look real good so that they end up coming in. So eventually, you've got a group of people in the room that's growing. They're all together. However, what these people in this room don't realize is that right down the hallway, there's another room. And a few people just happen to meet up in that room as well. Like, hey, look, this is working. I got an idea. Let's get all the people to come to our room. They open up all the doors. They start to make it look pretty. And before you know it, you've got this building, and you've got like six or seven rooms that are really starting to pack out. Well, in each room, you know what they think? We're all here. We've made it. We're uniting. This is terrific. And then someone will walk down the hall, and they hear people in this room, and they hear people in this room, and everyone at the room is saying, hey, come, come, unite with us. And they think, well, but... Uh, which, which us? Eventually, what you've got in the name of unity is factions. Well, still desiring unity, the groups look at their sizes, and they tell the other groups, well, our group is bigger. Come to our room. Yeah, but look, our room... Everyone's in close proximity in these rooms. Your room might be bigger, but if you come to us, then there's less movement required. You have to go a long way, but all of us are all in these rooms close to each other. You come this way. And we start to reason out and rationalize why our room is the room that is deserving of the unity. Essentially, attaining unity becomes all about getting others to come to our room to come to our side. Now, same scenario, but instead of people all starting all over the building, I want you to imagine that everybody begins in the same room. Unity is achieved. Okay, unity is already there. Their goal of unity is still the same. We want to be united, but the way that they go about achieving it is different. Now, the way of achieving unity isn't relocation and attraction. The way of achieving unity is not going out through any other doors that are going to divide you. That becomes the goal. And this is kind of what Paul is hinting at here. Division happens when one person says, or a group, or multiple people says, hey, Let's unite in this room over here because this is going to be better. And it's very appealing for us as Christians because though we are saved, we still have this tugging of the flesh 
that is constantly trying to pull our affections away from Christ. So these rooms begin to look appealing. The key to unity in this instance is recognizing that you're already in the same room and that you just need to avoid anything that would remove you from it. Unity in a church is much more than trying to say and think the same things, though it definitely includes those things sometimes. Rather, unity in a church requires intentional sacrifice so that unity can be preserved. What this means sometimes is that we don't go to that room, even though that room looks wonderful and I've been there. Why don't we do that? Because I want to stay united with my people. This is what unity in a church begins to look like. Now, this analogy will break down on several levels, but you get the point. This applies to much more than just the church. Almost any type of relationship you can think of, think about it. Those good relationships, those relationships that are valuable, that are thriving, they do well because we have an attitude of self-sacrifice towards one another. Who likes being in a relationship where the other person is always complaining about what they don't like or who is never compromising for the sake of progress or mutual benefit? Those relationships that work best and last the longest are those where you sacrifice for one another. That's how God designed the marriage relationship to be. That's how he's designed all relationships to be. We are to look out for one another. When someone says something hurtful in these relationships, we look past that offense for the sake of your relationship. We're not willing to do that for someone we don't know. We, we get all up in arms about it. But if it's someone that you really know and love, they can say something hurtful to you, and you can look past it. Why? Because you want to be in relationship with them. Suddenly, you're not pointing out all their flaws. You're trying to justify, well, he was just tired. Well, she was hangry. She hadn't eaten all day. Well, he was, he was upset because he's, you know, we make these excuses. Why do we do that? You ever thought about that? We don't do it for others. It's for those people that we want to give the benefit of the doubt. Why do we want to give the benefit of the doubt? For the sake of unity. So what are we willing to do? Sacrifice, my pride, doing something that I want to do. This is how I've experienced it. When someone shows excitement about a particular activity, it means that you go along with it, even though it's not what you would have chosen to do, simply because that person likes it. Gabriel, we, ha we love board games at our house. Well, Gabriel has this game that he likes to play. Hey, Gabriel. He, he has this game he likes to play called Bandido. Okay? It's about this bandit. Look, it's really fun. Okay? So we play this game Bandido. Not all of us like the game Bandido. Okay? Most of us typically like it. We're not always in the mood to play it. But you know what? Sometimes when it's time for someone to choose, okay, Gabriel, you get to choose the game, he will come out and he'll say, can we play Bandido? And there's a mixture of Okay, and uh, you know what we usually do? We usually end up playing Bandito. Why? It's not because all of us want to play it every single time it's brought up. It's because we love Gabriel and he loves Bandito. So we play it. That's sacrifice on a small level. Sometimes the reason we divide is because we're too quick to focus on those things that we don't like and that we wish were different. 
one of the best mindsets we can develop here is, eh, doesn't matter to me. Or you want to eat, eh, it don't matter. As long as I can't own whatever we're eating as a pet, I'll eat there. Okay, whatever it is. For some of you, it's like, as long as there's no meat, which you know what? Praise God, I will, I will find something to eat there, but next time let's get some meat, please. If it truly doesn't matter in the grand scheme of things, it shouldn't matter to us personally in the moment. If it does truly matter in the grand scheme of things, and Paul's going to get to this in his letter also, if it does matter in the grand scheme of things, then it should matter to us personally, to the point sometimes of division. But that is only if it matters in the grand scheme of things. That is how unity will be maintained. You choose not to divide. So Paul continues, and this is going to be a large chunk next. I'm not going to reread the whole thing. But he continues here in verse 11, going all the way down through 16. And he's giving an example of their disunity. So verse 10 sets up his command. Let there be no division among you. That's the meat of it. And in so doing, you are all agreeing and being of the same mind and same judgment. So now he gives the example. For it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. And he brings it out. The disunity here has to do with certain teachers within the church. And what's important for us to see is that every name here is a godly man. Each of you says... I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. In the Greek, it's actually just, the word follow is not there, it's just, I am of Paul. Like, I am Paul. I am one of Paul. I am of Paul. So it's this association, this close, yeah, he's my teacher, and he's my teacher. And then you got the over-spiritualized person. Well, Jesus is my teacher. <laughs> and Paul says, you're doing the same thing. You're doing the same thing. The disunity here has nothing to do with the teachers. They're all good. More specifically, it's not a division over what they are teaching. They all taught the gospel. Rather, this division is likely over how they taught or some other personal preference. And I'm going to show you why. If you look down at verse 17... Paul mentions that he wasn't concerned about speaking with eloquence so that he didn't muddy the gospel. Christ did not seek me to send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. In chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, When I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. In chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, I could not address you as spiritual people. Verse 3, while there's jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? Chapter 3, verses 10 through 15, he's describing how these different servants have come together, and one has laid a foundation, and the other is building. So it's all an issue of how they are presenting the information. The issue here is not worthy of division, but they've allowed themselves to become divided over issues of personal preference. Man, I really like whenever Paul is teaching, the way that he, that's just so good. Man, I really like Peter's use of analogy. 
A few weeks ago, I mentioned James 4, 1 through 2, Sunday evening. What causes quarrels and what causes fights? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have. So you murder, you fight and quarrel. Well, right here we have a perfect example. The quarreling is over this. Which teacher is the best? Let me give you a modern day example of this. You should have known this was coming. <laughs> I mean, it's right here. Whose preaching do you like better? Which guy has the better illustrations? Well, this guy has better jokes. This other guy thinks he's funny. He's not. Which one has the shorter sermons? Which preacher has the more pointed application? Which preacher has a better pulpit presence? That's an actual thing we talk about, pulpit presence. Hey, who sings that song better? Well, I like it when so-and-so sings. Their voice is just great. Whose voice is more pleasant? Which instrument sounds better or doesn't sound as good? Why do we got to have this instrument on the stage? Why do we have to use hymnals? Why do we have to use the screens? Well, I like this style of music more. This is the music that speaks to me. We really haven't changed that much, <laughs> have we? We really have not changed that much. People say the Bible is not relevant. That is a joke. The common theme here in all of these questions is me, myself, and I, even though those words don't pop up that often. That's what it is. By pursuing personal desire and preference, we are intentionally pursuing division. Because we are not ultimately united in personal preference. We're united in Christ. We're not all going to like the same things. And that's okay. The question we have to ask is, and that Paul is basically asking here, is what is most important? That's what we can and we should divide over. Division happens when our priorities begin to get out of order. And Paul exposes this in his questions here, back in verse 13. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? And it pushes him to say this incredible thing. I mean, you kind of read over it. I did. I thank God that I baptized none of you. Can you imagine me standing here and saying, I thank the Lord I haven't baptized any of you? That is an incredible statement. Why is Paul compelled to say that? Because he doesn't want them to be able to come together and say, well, guess what? Paul baptized me. That's really what we're going to divide over? Who baptized you? The teacher isn't the priority. The gospel is the priority. Paul didn't die for them, and Paul isn't the name in whom they are baptized. The teacher is largely irrelevant so long as that teacher is teaching the gospel. So this is our second point this morning and our final point. Church unity requires gospel priority. 
unity must prioritize the gospel because the gospel is our source of power. When we begin to unite around something else, we are making that the fuel and the purpose for our existence. And what we're doing is we're robbing ourselves of power. Stacy and I, the house we moved into, there's a, we've learned it's a, a smoke alarm in the hallway. And um, probably a month ago, maybe is when it started. Okay. A month ago, anytime we turn the light off in the hallway, it goes, the batteries are low. Please check your batteries. The first time it scared the daylights out of me when it went off. Okay. And Gabriel. Yes, the kids are in the back in their rooms laying in bed, and it goes off, and Kristen will just start laughing hysterically from her bedroom. Like, okay, go to sleep, Kristen. Stupid smoke alarm. Pulling it off. So we changed out the batteries. Then something happened. <laughs> A few weeks later, coming down the hall, turn the light off. Boom, boom. Your batteries are low. No, I no. I just put brand new batteries in there. Why? So we take it down. We put new batteries in. It's doing it again. So Stacy does her detectiving. She gets out her phone. Does what we all do. We go to Google. Why is this certain alarm doing this? And it turns out this particular brand of smoke alarm, you got to have a certain type of battery for it. If you don't use the lithium ion whatever thing battery. Apparently, it drains quickly. But if you use the right battery, it will last for how, <laughs> I don't know, however long it lasts. They're both batteries. They both provide power. They both serve that function. One of them is not as powerful in this device as the other. Gospel unity in the church is the lithium whatever ion battery. That's where the power of the church comes from. That's not to say that other churches that don't have that gospel centrality can't be effective. Sure, they can be effective. They're still dispensing the gospel to a degree. But we have to recognize that the gospel is the source of our power. Paul doesn't save. Peter doesn't save. Music doesn't save. The table layout at a church function doesn't save. The variety of desserts at a party doesn't save. The style of music doesn't save. The color of the carpet or the pews doesn't save. Hymnals don't save. Projectors don't save. Extended lists that repeat key words and phrases for emphasis don't save. Paul continues, baptism doesn't save. Look, baptism is important, but Paul is willing to throw baptism into the discussion to make his point. Who cares who baptized you? Who cares? That doesn't matter. None of these things save anyone. It is only the cross of Jesus Christ that saves us. So he was called to preach the gospel. And he says in verse 17, he wasn't sent to preach with eloquent words of wisdom. Why? Because in that moment, the cross of Christ is being emptied of its power. Someone walks away from the sermon, instead of saying, God is so good, they walk away saying, man, I love your illustrations. Thank you.
These things don't save anyone. Jesus has died in the place of every single sinner who confesses faith in Jesus as Lord and turns to him from their sin so that they may have eternal life. That is what matters. That is what's going to save people. I can say that statement exactly the way that I just said it, and it is just as powerful as if Charles Spurgeon, in his eloquent presentation, stood in this pulpit and said it. Just as powerful. That's what matters. If we're going to divide, it needs to be over that. The further removed from the gospel that anything is, the more willing we need to be to go without it. Now, there are some issues that start to get close to gospel issues. Those are things that are worthy of discussion, and uh, we're going to push back on that. I don't know. But then there are certain things that really have nothing to do with the gospel. It doesn't matter. Let's just do something. Let's just make a decision together. We won't all agree on everything. We won't, in the words of verse 10, we won't all have the same mind and the same judgment on everything. That's not what he's trying to say. That's not the point of the passage. The point is that we agree to have the same mind and same judgment not to divide over those things that are not gospel issues. That's the unity. That's the same mind and same judgment. This is gospel unity. It is unity that is fueled by the gospel. Die to myself and live for Christ. That's gospel unity. If you learn the art of self-sacrifice, you won't get what you want near as much in life. I'm just going to tell you now. You're not going to. You won't get what you want near as much. But I will guarantee you that you will be happier. There are few things as fulfilling and joyous as unity, especially in the name of Christ Jesus. Says who? Says God. Psalm 133. This is so awesome of a truth that God wrote an entire psalm about it and he only needed three verses. Psalm 133. In my Bible, it's titled, When Brothers Dwell in Unity. That's not actually a part of the original scriptures. Someone came back later and added that. Okay. When Brothers Dwell in Unity, that just tells me what it's about. But here are the actual words of the psalm. Psalm 133. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It's like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It's like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. The end. You don't have to know the significance of the anointing oil placed on the head of Aaron running down into his beard to get what the guy's trying to say. How precious it is, how good and pleasant when brothers dwell in unity. Let's pray. 
Lord, we thank you that you have united us, people with different desires, interests, hobbies, perspectives, thought processes, levels of emotional stability, capabilities, gifts, skills. You have united us all through the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ. Both Jew and Greek, American, European, Australian, you have united all in you through the blood of your Son. Thank you. God, we confess to you, it is so tempting, so tempting for us to divide from one another. I confess to you, it is so tempting to divide from my brothers and sisters on the basis of what I want most in a given moment. Lord, would you grant us the discernment to know, whether it's in our church or just in our relationships, those things that we need to be ready and willing to sacrifice for. Teach us to sacrifice for the sake of unity. Teach us those things that are worthy of division so that we might continue to be faithful to you even in those things as well. Please do not allow us to sacrifice doctrinal purity or faithfulness to your word for the sake of unity. Please do not allow us to have our personal preference be the dividing factor in us either. God, we need your wisdom and discernment in these things. We need your grace to sustain us and to enable us to these things because we cannot do it on our own. Thank you for saving us through your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.